Let us turn now to the Lord in prayer. We do exalt you, our great God, our King. We exalt our Lord. You are the one who rules over us, and you're the one who rules over us in love that is indescribable. We thank you for that work that we cannot ever truly fully understand. That work that was done upon the cross of the victory won by our great king as our warrior. One who has brought to us our redemption, our salvation. We give you praise for that which is beyond us to even comprehend. But that which we do, that small part that we know, fills us with great awe, great gratitude. Our Father, we, even in the midst of our praise and thanksgiving to you, we must also confess that there are times that we have not been even very grateful for what we have. That because of things that may have gone right or not gone right in our lives in this past week, we have not thought that you were that loving or that you were not that sovereign because things did not go the way we wanted them to go. As a result, that we did not love you as we ought and we did not love our neighbor as we ought. We were resentful of others, we coveted, we were jealous. Uh, we were filled with unrighteous anger. In many ways that we have broken your law, whether it is actively in our deeds, or whether it is in our, our thoughts, whether it is what we have transgressed the law, or whether we just do not live up to what we ought to have done. And we confess these things before you. But all the more we give you thanks that because of our Lord Jesus, who is our King and who is our High Priest, we may come before the Holy of Holies into your presence, even before that mercy seat, and find not judgment, but find mercy. We give you praise for the mercy you show to us. We thank you, our Father, that we, because we come to one who hears us, who loves us, that we may know that we may lift our petitions before you and know that you do hear. We do lift up this world that is filled with darkness. Pray for the light of Christ, the light of your gospel to go forth. There would be those who are brought out of that darkness and into the light of Jesus Christ. We thank you for those who have answered your call uh, to carry that, that word forward, that gospel. We uh, thank you for those who are here who are worshiping with us. We thank you for the, uh, the ministry of Ajanti um, and Dijan and Chani and their ministry in Albania. And we pray for, uh, that you would answer their prayers, for there to be great fruit uh, in their ministry. There will be those in that country who will come and confess and know Jesus Christ. And those who know you will be built up in that faith. We do pray, uh, our Father, for the, the work of the, the Wheatleys in Salt Lake City. What a difficult field that that must be. And yet, uh, just as you had said to Paul in Corinth, uh, so we know it is true in Salt Lake City that there are your people there. And we pray that uh, through uh, the ministry of New Song Church, uh, that there will be those who hear the gospel, 
who proclaim Jesus Christ and know him truly because of that work that is being done there. Father, we thank you for the the ministries that are taking place here and, and even through our church. And we lift up the upcoming two outreaches that we will be conducting this summer, the Vacation Bible School open to the community here. And we pray now for the teachers who are preparing, for all those who are getting ready for that, and that uh, on that day in June when the doors are open, that there will be many children who come, and because they came, they will hear the gospel and understand the love that is of Jesus Christ. We pray as well that their parents and grandparents, and we pray for other adults who would come to the adult classes we will have. And again, that your gospel, that the seed of that gospel will be planted in many hearts. We pray for the outreach in July uh, to, the, uh, for, to the Atlas ministering families. And we pray as well for that gospel to be impressed upon very clearly to those children who are here to the uh, parents who will come for that, o- for that closing night of service. And all the more, our Father, we pray that we then will all the more be a light for this community, that people will know, here the gospel is proclaimed. Father, we pray for uh, the minister whom we truly believe that you have called uh, to come here and we pray for Sam Smith and for his family to be preparing them be with them through this time of transition and uh, that you're, you will provide for all that is needed for their safe arrival here in July. Pray your blessings upon them. And then we lift ourselves before you. Now as we gathered here, we have come to worship you, to give you glory. And we pray that in the midst of that, that you will feed us. And as we worship you through the hearing of your word and its proclamation, that we, as we honor you, so you will lift us up, feed us with that which we need, maybe conviction, comfort, encouragement, whatever it may be. Lift our eyes, particularly upon our Lord Jesus Christ, to see him truly as our king and as our priest. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we've already... Uh, read our text, Psalm 110. You're welcome to follow along in your bulletin. There's an insert with it, as well as you have your Bibles uh, there in the the seats in front of you. Uh, Psalm 110. We are following along the last few weeks. We have been walking along the Emmaus Road with Jesus and two of his disciples. And along that road, He has been walking with these two disciples who don't recognize him, as it says, interpreting to them in all the scriptures what we would regard as the Old Testament, explaining how all of that is speaking of him. We've seen, for example, in in Genesis, how he is that offspring of Eve who bruised the, the head of Satan. He is the redeemer who delivers his people from a, a greater bondage than the bondage that they had had in Egypt. He's that goat that was slain on the Day of Atonement, that scapegoat that was sent out into the wilderness bearing our sins and making atonement for our sins. And indeed, all of those temple sacrifices are pointing to him as that great sacrifice. Now today we're going to see how he fulfills the image that most captured the Jewish imagination. 
that as they would think about it, it most stirred up the hope that was in their hearts. And that is Jesus as king. So looking at our text, it begins this way. It's saying, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. And when we, and when the Jewish people, when they think of the greatest king of Israel, we naturally think of David, the second king. David was described as a man after God's own heart. And ever since his defeat over Goliath, he became renowned as the the great warrior for his people. As a king of Israel, he delivered his people from the oppression of the Philistines and other neighbors. He eventually established peace within the, the nation's boundaries. And more importantly, it was David who fulfilled the ideal of the godly king. He is the one who ruled over his people with justice. He is the one who actually would even lead them to worship and to, to follow with their hearts to follow after God. Now, of particular significance is the covenant promise that was made to David by God. And David, after many years, and he established peace, he decided that it would be good to build a temple for the Lord. He asked Nathan, uh, God's prophet, about it. Nathan said, that was a great idea, go ahead and do it. But then Nathan went home and actually received a word from the Lord, which was, no, that's going to be a job for David's successor, uh, Solomon. But there was another matter that God passed on to David, which is of vital importance to him and actually to all of Israel ever since. And here's what God said to David through Nathan. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established Forever. Forever. Forever there will be a son of David sitting on the throne of Israel. And this truly caught the imagination of Israel and certainly of David. And Psalm 89 is a psalm devoted actually to this theme. But let me just read a couple of verses from that. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. This is a great promise, and it was a promise that was certainly was going to be tested. I mean, after David's successor, Solomon, that kingdom was divided into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom, which retained the name of Israel. There was the southern kingdom, which took the name of the primary tribe, which was Judah. Now, that northern kingdom had rebelled. And throughout its history, it would experience a succession of king after king, one king tumbling another, and rarely did the son ever follow the father. But in Judah, the line of David, it continued, all the way until the destruction of Jerusalem. So yes, the the line of David continued unbroken on the throne. The problem was that eventually the throne itself failed to continue. As I mentioned, Israel was broken into two kingdoms. 
both of those kingdoms eventually failed. The northern kingdom to Assyria, the southern kingdom to Babylon. But as time went on, until that downfall took place, I mean, the prophets actually prophesied that these downfalls would happen, but they also prophesied something else. And that was the rise of Israel, that her people would return out of exile and that the throne of David would be renewed. Indeed, there would come the son of David who would redeem and rule his people. I want to read to you three verses from, or three passages from three different prophets so you can see how it just captured the imagination of the people. First of all, from Jeremiah 33. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And then there's Ezekiel verse 30, in chapter 37. My servant David will be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob and where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And then the one that you best know, From Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government. And of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David. And over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Can can you catch on to the expectations, the the hope that revolved around this, this great king who was going to come from the line of David? And he was going to prove to be that offspring of Eve who had bruised the serpent's head. He he was going to be that prophet spoken of by Moses who said there would be one that would follow him. He was going to be that redeemer who would champion Israel and establish her as God's mighty kingdom forever. And so we see this hope as Jesus comes onto the scene. In the very first book of the New Testament, there in the first verse, we are introduced to Jesus in this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, is here. And the angel Gabriel announces to Mary that she's going to give birth to Jesus. Here's what he, he says to her. He will be great and will be called the son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The son of David is the king of Israel. And so you might remember when Nathaniel confesses Jesus to be the Messiah, what does he call him? You are the king of Israel. 
that long-awaited Messiah is the son of David, the king of Israel. But then here's the question. Who will he be precisely? Nathaniel also called Jesus the son of God. In fact, that's what Peter would confess later on as well. And was that to be understood kind of just like an honorable title? Or was there something more to it? Was it saying something about the nature of the Messiah? That was the question that Jesus had for the Pharisees. And he uses our passage for reference. Let me read it to you. It's from Matthew 22. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, well, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, and then he quotes, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And we're told that no one was able to answer him a word. And after that, they wouldn't ask him any more questions either. Now, Jesus is picking up here on the introduction to Psalm 110. It'll be in your Bibles. And it attributes it to saying this psalm is a psalm of David. Now, all the Jewish teachers accepted that, that this psalm was written by David. And they understood, as they said, that it's speaking of the Messiah, the Christ. Now, you understand Messiah and Christ are the same. In Greek, Christ is the word for Messiah. So if the Messiah, Jesus is saying, is, is no more than a descendant of David, how is it that the head of the family, David, refers to his son as his Lord? And they can't give an answer. And Jesus just leaves it that way. But it's clear that he wants them to understand that their hope for Messiah is more than, you know, a really great man who was born many years later along that uh, genealogy. And for that matter, his kingdom is much more than just some really big earthly empire. He's king, to be sure. But their concept of being a king is far too small. And that leads us to the second key concept that's in our psalm. The Messiah will be not only king, but he will be the priest king. Look with me in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Jesus does not quote from that verse, okay? But it is the favorite verse of the writer of Hebrews, who actually devotes two chapters to really an otherwise obscure figure who was never linked to the concept of Messiah, or for that matter, the the idea of a Messiah being a priest had never entered into their minds at all. The Jews were looking for a king, not a priest just as they had never been looking for a lamb to be a sacrifice. As central as the sacrificial system was and the priesthood were to their religion, the the only connection between those concepts of sacrifice and priest and that of Messiah 
was that they understood that the people had to prepare themselves spiritually to receive the Messiah. So they understood, yes, they're sinners. They need to repent. They understood John the Baptist's mission of calling them to repent in order to prepare for that king's coming. So yes, we've got to make sacrifices. We, we need to have priests to mediate for us so that we will be righteous followers of the king when he comes. But what in the world does Melchizedek have to do with anything? Okay. Let me read to you all of the scripture that covers this figure of Melchizedek. It's here in Genesis 14. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, that is, Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And that's it. Now, what the context is, Abraham, at this time his name was Abram, had gone out to rescue his, his nephew Lot, who had been captured by kings and, and their army. And so he goes out there and he delivers and he's on his way back. And he's passing by the, the city of uh, Salem. And this king named Melchizedek, he comes out, he provides food and drink for the men and he gives him a blessing and then that's it. No other references made to him until we come to Psalm 110, we have that one little verse, and never again do we hear of Melchizedek until we come to the book of Hebrews. And here, the, the writer of Hebrew pictures him as the key type, foreshadowing of understanding of who Jesus Christ the Messiah is. So what does that writer have to say? Well, basically, three things he points out about Melchizedek. First of all, he says that that name is significant. It means king of righteousness. And he also knows that he was the king of the city called Salem. Salem means peace. And so, Melchizedek is the king of righteousness, and he is the king of peace, both of which would apply to the Messiah king. Okay. The second thing that's significant is the very mystery of who he is. There's no reference to his parents, no genealogy, no reference to him dying. He's just like a person who, with, as it says in Hebrews, with neither beginning of days nor end of life. And that's significant. The third thing is that he blesses Abraham and indeed receives a tithe from Abraham. And that's significant because it indicates that here is someone who was greater than their father, Abraham. Okay. Now, this all might be interesting, but we kind of go, okay, why are we talking about this? Why are you telling us these things? Well, the writer has an answer. And he says this. Let's look at the sacrificial system. The people of God depended upon that system to make amends for their sins. But I'm going to let you in on the truth, he's saying. However good it may have made them feel, the system accomplished nothing for a couple of reasons. One being, you know, really the sacrifices of animals, their blood, it, it doesn't really do anything. Okay? 
But secondly, it's the priests themselves are the problem. They're defective. They're sinners. They're mortals. They can never become clean enough, and they can never live long enough to do their work to its fullest. They were of the order of Aaron. You know, it's from Aaron that the priests come. And Aaron was just another sinner. He was another mortal. But the Messiah, Jesus Christ, he is of the order of Melchizedek. Just like Melchizedek didn't have a beginning or end as far as we know, he is eternal. He is the sinless high priest. And he has offered up the one perfect sacrifice, which is himself, which is effective. Indeed, it is sufficient to cover all of our sins. And then this priest has then gone on and entered into the Holy of Holies of the Heavenly Temple. And there he is seated as king and priest. He is there at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, the book of Hebrews had not been written, of course, when Jesus was taking that stroll along the Emmaus Road with his disciples. But you might even wonder, we don't know who the writer of Hebrews is. And maybe the writer of Hebrews got it from Jesus teaching this about himself. How the Messiah is the king of righteousness and peace. Who brought back, who brought both of these things, righteousness and peace, through his victory on the cross. How he is the king who, who delivers and redeems his people from bondage to sin. He's the king who sacrifices his life for their life. And he is their priest who mediates for them even now. By, first of all, by his work on the cross. He has mediated a new covenant based on his work, not their work. He has entered into the Holy of Holies with that perfect sacrifice of his blood. And he right now is continually interceding for them before the throne of heaven. Here is your priest, king. Now let's turn to us. And what does this all mean for us? That our Messiah, our Christ, is king and priest. Well, of course, it, first of all, it means the same thing as it did for those two Jewish disciples. Jesus is the king. He's won for us that victory on the cross. He's delivered us from bondage. He's our priest. He has cleansed us from our sins. We're reconciled to God. That work is done. Now, we've already talked about these things, actually, in the previous messages on redemption and atonement. But what I want to try to do now is, is to try to help stir these concepts into your imagination. And it's more needed now than, than we may realize because I really believe that it's because of lack of imagination in our faith that contributes to the decline of our faith and indeed of religion today. And when I say imagination, I don't mean made up stuff, but I mean capturing, understanding what it is that our Lord is, is a king, that he's a priest. See, we live in a time in which the very word religion it's been turned into a negative concept. I mean, no one will say that they're religious. No one believes in organized religion anymore. That's, that's passe. What matters now is not to, to be religious, it's to be spiritual. You know, religion, it's a set of rules, 
For spirituality, well, that's just, that's a feeling of, of communing with God, whoever and whatever he may be to you. I mean, even we Christians have kind of fallen into this. We, we've developed an aversion of religion. We don't like to say that. We, we have faith, not religion. We're spiritual. We commune with God. We commune with Christ or the Holy Spirit. Now, that's true. And all of this is an understandable reaction. One thing that it's reacting to is, is what the Christian religion has kind of evolved into in many churches, which is simply a set of rules to follow. You come in, you believe these things, you do these things, you act this way, and that's what it is to be a Christian. But the danger for us, and kind of just doing away with that, or denigrating religion, is that our faith evolves a little more into just kind of a new age spirituality in which it's all about kind of just having happy vibes. You know, as long as I'm fine, it's fine what you believe, it's it's fine what anyone believes, as long as we feel close with God, whoever and whatever he might be. But look, what we need and what we all actually crave when we think about it is a hero that we can follow and a story whose reality and, and meaning we can believe in. And that is what Christianity offers. That's what Christ offers. You know, we tend to end up in, in kind of two paths. We'd heir to a religion as characterized by rules. That's what we do. Or we adhere to this New Age spirituality and it's about feeling good. But neither one lifts our spirits to the true God and to his glorious path for us. But in our Christian religion, what do we have? We have a king to follow. He is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He's the the king of hosts. He's the ancient of days. He is the Redeemer who was looked for since the earliest days of mankind, indeed, even as man fell. He is the bruiser of the serpent's head. He is the son of David who is David's Lord. Every king before him was but a a foreshadowing of this great king to come. And every one of them failed. Every king before him turned out to be a sinner. There might have been some who were more righteous, some reigned with a fair amount of justice, but all were sinners, all were weak in one respect or another. There had never been, and there has never been after Christ Jesus, a king without blemish, who did not reveal in public or in private that he was not the perfect man we had hoped for. We live in a time in which our heroes are unheroed. Now, historians unearth the defects and the illusions of our past heroes. So that even as we remember the great men and, and women, there's always a little bit of regret. You know, too bad. He or she did not do such and such or, or did this or didn't believe this or, or whatever. And today, while the light shines on the heroes of today, they are so bright, they are so penetrating You can't miss the stains and defects of them. 
I mean, today's stars, be they celebrities or athletes or whatever they are, one thing that they're quick to do, to disclaim, I am not a model. I'm not a model to follow. And it's not because they're modest. It's because they know that something uncomfortable will be found out about them sooner or later or that at some point they will stumble and it will be magnified. There is no great hero. But we, we have a king with no defect, with no blemish, who has been tempted as we are, yet has never given in to sin. We have a king that we can follow without shame. You know, there are those who boast, don't they? Our neighbors like to boast. Well, we follow no one. But the truth is, they don't follow anyone because they don't believe that there is anyone worth following. But if they had been given the eyes to see and the minds to understand this great king, they would gladly follow him. He is the Lord Jesus Christ who has conquered sin and death and Satan. He is the one who came to do his Father's will, even to march to the cross, even to suffer upon the cross, so that we, we who are small and sinful and unlovely, so that we might be freed from sin's bondage and have victory over death. And we have a king that no one can defeat. He says that he will save all who come to him and that no one will snatch us out of his hands. He says that he is the resurrection and the life and that all who believe in him will never die. He says that there is a crown of gold that he's going to place on the heads of those who are faithful to him. And that what awaits us who believe in him is is glory. Glory for eternity. This is a king worth following. This is a destiny worth believing in. And we have a priest. We have a priest, as I said, who has entered into the holy of holies of heaven itself. He has offered the perfect sacrifice, sufficient, once and for all, for all of our sins. Think on this. Your guilt, it's gone. It's removed. It has been cast into the bottom of the sea. It's over with. We have a priest who has mediated for us a better covenant than any man could make because its conditions rest in his work, only in his work and not ours. And I assure you that he has not and he will never fail. And we have a priest who is unashamed to be called our brother, who is sympathetic to us, who who never fails to intercede for us. And on that day, on Judgment Day, we stand before judgment. He will be at our side. And he will claim us as his own. We have a priest king from whom we can never be separated. No foe can overtake us. No inner failing can disqualify us. Our priest king is is strong to save. He is faithful to his promise. He is merciful in his regard toward us. And so keep your eyes upon your priest king. If you do, you will not grow weary. You definitely will not grow bored of your religion. But you will be strong to serve. And you will be faithful in your belief in him. 
And you will be grateful in your regard toward him. We give you praise, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ, our great priest king, who has won for us that victory over sin, over death itself, who someday, we scarce can can believe this, will someday crown us with glory. That is our destiny as we follow this king. May we ever keep our eyes focused, lifted up upon him. In his name we pray. Amen.